Good morning, everyone. It's time now for another exciting demo. Well, right kind of a demo. <laughs> yeah. If that's what you want to call it, then that's what it'll be. <laughs> well, today, once again, we have Debbie Hill, uh, and we are recording this on uh, Zoom. And uh, Debbie was on last week, and she talked about the Mantis. The Mantis Q40. And uh, this week, she is uh, going to talk about a little, and she's going to give you a little bit of information about where she works, worked, and um, she has a topic that she wants to talk about. Chris, you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, um, she used to do presentations, and she'll get into all this, so I'm going to keep it brief. She'll get into uh, this, but she did presentations for the National Institute of Health, NIH, and she did some presentations on uh, research development. So she's going to talk some about that, and she'll get into a little bit of uh, vaccine development, which is certainly pertinent to the virus today. So at this time, I will say hello to Debbie Hill and turn it over to Debbie. Okay. Thanks, Dave. Hello, everyone. And um, first of all, um, just hope everyone's doing all right. And first of all, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, myself. Uh, I was a, I'm retired now, but I was a research, a research social worker, a medical social worker at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, which is the nation's premier research uh, facility. They not only do their own research, but we also fund research across the country um, for various, various things. Anyway, so I did work there, and I was asked to teach our patients a research class. And one of the topics that we discussed, which I thought you might find interesting, was medication development. How are medications how did scientists come up with them? How do they go through the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and um, then relate that to the vaccine development so you can see what is actually happening at this point with the vaccine development? So uh, let us get started. First, I'm going to talk, most of this is about the medication development, but it it ended up applying pretty much to the vaccine development, too. Um, the first thing that when medications develop, the scientists try to find a compound that actually works. And they usually have to do a lot of looking. Um, they can look at hundreds or thousands of compounds to find one that actually seems to solve the problem that they're working on. Um, they... They can do different kind of uh, what they call assays, and they put the compounds in, into, you know, a Petri dish and use different enzymes and see if what they can, what they can grow. Um, a lot of times, drugs come from, originate from bacteria or fungus or uh, even viruses or mold. And they'll just grow them in a broth to see if they can come up with something that actually is useful in a medical setting. Once they have 
come up with a compound, the very first thing, when they think they have something that's useful, the very first thing that happens is it does have to go to animal studies. And they usually use two different species of animals, um, one being smaller animals like mice or rats. And then they need something larger that's more resembles humans. Um, so they'll use monkeys or other kinds of apes, that sort of thing. Um, the, and they try to use as few animals as possible and try to do this in a very humane sort of way. One of the interesting statistics about all of this is when they start testing compounds, the estimate is that only 5 in 5,000 compounds actually make it to the next step, which is human testing. And of those 5 in 5,000, only 1 in 5 actually end up making it to the market for a usable and safe drug. So you can see why this process can be very expensive for drug companies because they have to go through so much to find just one thing that works. Now, um, with the vaccines, which I'll talk a little bit about, uh, more about later, they actually did not, you know, use, use uh, fungus or bacteria or whatever. Um, they had different, they found different methods to try to produce a vaccine. And as I said, I will talk about that later. But after the animal studies, if they're satisfied that the animal studies look good, that the drug seems like it, it does what it's supposed to do and there were no terrible, terrible side effects, the next studies are usually done in a very closed environment with people, meaning people come in and, and may actually stay in a hospital setting for a while to be monitored. This is phase one of the drug development. Um, in phase one, they're really trying to determine the dosing of the drug, and they, ac they actually are looking at how the drug is handled in the body, how it's metabolized, and they even look at how it, it's excreted to find out what, how, you know, does it just go right through the body and then, you know, maybe not be, it doesn't show any effectiveness or, and they also look for acute side effects, so just to really pop up stuff. Um, it's usually healthy volunteers. That's people who don't have the condition that's being treated. They're just really looking for the safety. Um, and they usually, in phase one, it's about 20 to 80 volunteers um, are used in those studies. So if the drug makes it past phase one, if they're satisfied with what this looks like, they go to phase two trials. This is more humans, and these are the people who actually have the disease or the condition that, that's being um, treated. And usually, I've seen different estimates, but it's 50 to 300 people are in those kinds of trials. And they're looking, they're really looking now because they've got the folks that have the um, the condition to find out whether the the product has the potential to treat. Um, they gather further information on safety, and they also are looking for the preliminary data on the um, the effectiveness of the drug. 
And that's really, that's also called the um, efficacy. Um, so, and they also, while they're looking at this, they, this helps them design the further studies with the drug, like how do they want to do it in future um, trials and what's the dosing like and that sort of thing. Um, so they, what they're really looking, the balancing act that they do when there's medication development is you, you want the drug to be effective with the lowest amount of the risks involved uh, for, um, for safety. So it really is a balancing act. Does it work? And are there few enough side effects that it's um, considered safe for people to use it? After phase two, you go to phase three. Now, this is important because you probably have heard on the news that there are vaccines in phase three. Phase three is lots more people, and um, it's usually people who have the condition, but with the vaccine, it's, it's going to be people that may be in contact with the virus. Um, now, when I first did this presentation, they said that phase three trials usually involve about 1,000 to 3,000 people. However, I have seen two different vaccine studies that they're really going to make sure that they are seeing the, the vaccine in a lots of folks because they're going to try to enroll up to 30,000 people in the vaccine studies. And that actually is um, a good thing I mean, 1,000 to 3,000 is a good sample of the population, but 30,000 is probably going to be better, and they're going to get people, more people with um, all different life conditions and things like that so that they can see how effective the vaccine is going to be, and they can also monitor the side effects. Um, in, in some medication development, when you're in Phase 2 and Phase 3, there's different ways of looking at it. This is where you, you'll hear people talk about controlled trials, random controlled trials. And what they do is, okay, you, when you're testing a medication, you want to make sure that the medication is working and that it's not just some sort of happenstance, some fluke. Um, so what you do is you set up the trials so that you can compare. So either you compare the use of the medication with a medication that's already out there on the market. For instance, if they're trying to create a brand new, really great blood pressure medicine, they may compare their new, what the, what the FDA calls, the Food and Drug Administration calls the innovator drug, they may compare that to one that's already on the market and, and works. Or they may also compare it to, uh, you've probably heard the word, placebo. And placebo is just a dummy um, medication. For instance, you know, basically they call them sugar pills, but they're not, they're not really. And they try not to use that. Um, they try not to use that reference. Um, because if you do a study with children and you tell them you're going to give them a sugar pill, 
you you biased your information because kids will you know think sugar pill is the next thing since well sliced bread. But anyway, so they'll do either one or the other. A lot of times, this kind of structure for a study um, has to be done because, for instance, if you're doing um, using uh, developing a say cancer treatment, and for very ill ill people, um, you you want to treat those people with the new medication, but you want to have your control group use something that's already out there. It would be inhumane not to treat somebody who, say, is terminally ill or um, can't go without some sort of medication. Um, the phase, two, phase three trials are usually over a longer period of time. And um, again, they're looking for the side effects, which you're more likely to see the side effects the longer the study is. Um, and they're they're also, you know, want to make sure that the the study is gonna um, is going to work. So that's phase three, and phase three trials are pretty much where the the um, that kind of research stops. It then goes to the FDA, which I'll talk about here in a minute, and then it, it can be approved. Now, occasionally, if the drug is pretty complicated and it's fairly new and the FDA is worried about uh, side effects, they may do a phase four trials. And probably they're going to do some of these with the vaccines just because of the nature of it. Phase four trials are when the, when the medication is already on the market. And the Food and Drug Administration just wants to make sure that they're not going to run into problems. They want to keep kind of control of who's getting the medication, any of the side effects, if this is actually working. So once it's on the market, you're, you may be involved in a phase four um, study. And in phase four, again, they're looking for the long-term risks and benefits and also for the optimal use of it, like what, how, um, how much dose, the dose level and stuff. And you also, phase fours can also include other populations. For instance, um, you may have drug developed, but only do it tested in adults. In a phase four trial, you might try um, testing it in children and using it in children and, see, and kind of see what you get. Um, the, um, okay, we talked about control groups, which is, um, that really is the scientific method that is the best way to test a drug, um, to, to have something that you can compare it to, to make sure that it's working. One of the other methods for when you do research to try to figure out if something's actually working is what's called, and we all know this word, is called blinding. And blinding, they, they actually talk about single blinding and double blinding, and it doesn't really have anything to do with one eye or two eyes. Um, but the, basically what happens is with blinding, and blinding also helps um, make the study um, results you know, look, look very, very good. If you have single blinding, what happens is the people that are administering 
the medication, they know which person's getting the controlled substance or the placebo, and they know which person is getting the real thing. Sometimes you have to do that just because of the nature of, um, nature of the drug. But the best way to do a study and to be sure that um, things are valid is to do double blinding. And double blinding is when the researcher, the people that are administering the medication, and the um, subjects in the study, the patients in the study, neither of them knows which one they're getting. That is actually the um, best way. Um, if you have single blinding, just that the, the researcher, the person administrating the drug knows which one it is, they could inadvertently provide information to the subject that tells them which one they're on. And, um, you know, they, they could possibly do things like they know somebody's getting a placebo. So they might inadvertently say something about, you know, you poor thing, or um, just be a little bit more uh, reticent or whatever. And that, that's going to complicate the results because the, because there is such a thing as the placebo effect. I mean, they, they have studied it over and over again. And sometimes when people's minds are really good at drumming up positive things, if you're told that a medication is going to work, uh, and I know I'm affected by this, um, I try a new medication for, say, headaches, and I really get into, oh, this is it. This is going to work. This is it. And, and for a while, yeah, it does. I mean, it, you know, your, your mind can do lots of good stuff like that. Um, but when you're doing research, you, you can't afford to have that kind of um, bias. So the blinding of the studies, not knowing what you're getting, is... Um, gives the study validity, gives, makes sure that it, it, um, everybody, you know, they know exactly when they look at the data that this is a result of the drug or this is, this person had the placebo. So yeah, the, the fact that their blood pressure didn't, you know, improve considerably or, or whatever, um, that that's because they had the placebo, not because of the medication itself. Um, so, um, so anyway, the other part of that, who gets, when you're doing a research study, who gets the medication and who gets the controlled substance or the placebo, that's all done randomly, usually done with computers. So it's, it's kind of the, um, in my notes, it says it's kind of a toss of the coin. So you, <clears throat> you decide, excuse me. You decide how many people you want to get the control substance or, and you decide how many people are going to get the real thing and then you randomly assign those to people. <clears throat> For, um, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, okay. So that's basically the components of, um, you know, of the studies. Um, and, and how the research study, how these are all done. So you have all your phases, 
You have an animal research phase. Phase one is a very small group of people just to make sure, and it's healthy folks, just to make sure that the drug is actually safe. Phase two is a few more people with the condition, and you want it, and you do a controlled trial. And then if it looks like it's fairly safe and it looks like it um, works, then you go to phase three where you get a lot more people and a lot better sampling um, of the population so you can find out it, even if, the more people you have, if there's going to be side effects, the more likely you are to see them. Okay, so that's um, basically um, how the process of developing the medication works. I'm going to quickly go over what happens going to the Food and Drug Administration. Um, again, with them, the first thing, they, don't, they aren't interested if all the, the uh, people developing the medications are doing animal studies. So they're not really in that, but the animal studies have to come first. And then the, the drug company or whoever is developing the medication, they have to... Um, they have to put in an application that's called the Investigational New Drug Application. And it is the thing that outlines what the properties of the drug, how they're going to do the human testing, and all. And it just gives an outline to the FDA of what they're thinking they're going to do. Um, then you, you go through the, the Phase 1 trials. You go through all the Phase um, the phase two trials in the phase three. Um, during that time period, the developer of the medication may be meeting with the FDA staff and talking to them about the work that they're doing, um, any problems that they see, um, just helping them, just getting some information from them about it. When the phase three trials are done, then the, the um, company or whatever that's doing the the, the um, experiments, they submit a, it's called an NDA, which is the formal step. It's the new drug application, and it's the formal step that goes to the FDA. And that, um, the FDA has, now I saw in my notes it says 60 days to reply to a new drug application. Online, I saw it says 30 days. I think they have tried to speed up because they want, they want um, to get some medications to the market a little bit faster. Um, so they have to respond and say that they, that they are going to review it, that they think that this medication has potential and that they're going to look at it. Then when they do look at it, um, they review everything. They look at all of the data from the trials. Um, they make sure that they see this, the safety and the effectiveness data. Um, they also go to where the, the medication is going to be manufactured and looked at how it's going to be manufactured. They look at how the medication is going to be labeled, and they make sure that it's got the proper labeling. If there are side effects, they've got to make sure that that is, is put in the labeling. Um, so they, they do all that work before a drug is approved. Um, and then once it's approved, you either get a letter, the, the, um, the, the people get a letter, um, from the company 
I mean, from the FDA saying whether they the drug is ready for the market, it's approved, or it isn't. And they have to give really good reasons why they don't approve something. And it does happen. But um, anyway, and then that letter also includes whether or not they think there should be a phase four trial, like once it's to market, do you need to continue the research? Um, when they're developing these medications, it's like I said before, it's very costly. Millions and millions and millions of dollars to, to come up with a new medication. And as we were looking at, very few that start as, you know, kind of a glint in somebody's eye actually make it to, um, to the market. A quick write-up. Now, sometimes you get, um, when, you're, when you're being put on medications, they talk about generic versus brand name. And I forgot to check on something, and I'm really sorry about that. How long, um, when, a, when a drug becomes, a new medicine is, becomes available, it's protected because of the cost in developing. It is protected from other forms of that medication being manufactured, the generics. And I'm not sure how long it is. It's, um, it's probably, it may be in the 20-year range, and I meant to look it up and I forgot to do it. So, um, and then also, for various reasons, the FDA can apply exclusivity, meaning beyond the patent of the drug, beyond that length of time, they can also add in um, extra time for various reasons. So those two things come into play before a medication can um, become a generic. But once it is ready to become a generic, you, the, the company that wants to develop the generic actually has another application that they can send to the FDA. And the things about generics that you should know is that they have to meet the rigid standards of the, as the FDA calls it, the innovator drug, the brand name drug. Um, they, they must have, to get approval as a generic, they must contain the same active ingredients of the innovator drug. Um, the inactive ingredients may vary. Um, they have to be identical in strength, dosage, and route of administration. That means that if the medication, the brand name medication is a pill, you can't come up with, say, a liquid for a generic. Okay, so it has to be the same, administered the same way. Um, it has to have the same indications, so it has to be used for the same condition. Um, B bioequivalent, which again is just the active ingredients have to be the same. Um, it has to meet the same batch requirements for identity, strength, purity, and quality, uh, and be manufactured under strict standards of the uh, Food and Drug Administration's good manufacturing pra um, practice regulations. So, so the, can I yeah. ask one question before sure. we get off that topic? Um, we had somebody tell us one time and, uh, that generics only had to contain 75% the strength. So that's not really true then. That's not true. That's not true. They have to contain the same as the brand name. Now, they said, they said there is some variance 
Um, but it was like they, they allow for, in some manufacturing, they allow for like a 3.5% um, slight variance. But generally, the thing that's going to make, um, if you ever have a problem with a generic, the thing that's going to make the difference is not the active ingredient in it. It's sometimes the inactive ingredient. For instance, I had a medication that I was started taking the generic and uh, got terribly itchy. And the one doctor and I decided that I probably have a sensitivity to yellow dye. And they, they may have included that because generic drugs don't look like the brand name drug. Physically don't look like it because you can't, you can't do that. They have to look differently. So they probably included the yellow dye to make the medication look differently. Well, it turns out I'm a little sensitive to that. So that caused a problem. I had to go to using the brand name drug, um, which is a bit on the expensive side, but it, you know, it just had to be done. So, um, but as far as the, as far as the active ingredients, it's got to be the same level, the same equivalent, everything. Um, and it is, it is approved and they, the, um, FDA looks at all, looks at all of that stuff. So, okay. So that is basically a roundup of FDA, um, what the, F the Food and Drug Administration does. Um, they regu regulate a lot of things, like they do look at food, they look at, um, the prescription drugs, even over the counter medications, um, the generics. Um, they do look at blood products. That's part of their thing. And the vaccines and bio, what they call vaccines and biologicals, which we're going to talk about right now. So, um, so what we're going to talk about is we're going to relate this to the vaccine studies that are going on right now. So you can see what's, what is being done. Now things are being done much more quickly than what they normally are. For instance, one of my articles I looked at, and I got my information from some NIH press releases. One of the articles said, normally, if you're starting from the ground up with a vaccine, it can take five to ten years to develop it. They're doing this in much quicker, much, much quicker um, because, of, because of the need. Um, so, anyway... First of all, let me tell you about, in case nobody's ever told you or you don't know, let me tell you about how the, what the virus looks like, the virus particle. It's kind of fun. Um, I talked to a good friend of mine, Sharon, who is a chemist, and she, she, so I said to her, I need to describe it. How do I describe it? She said, it looks like a malted milk ball that somebody spiked sugar on top of it. So they, like the sugar is projecting out of it and spikes, and I said, are the spikes all over? And she said, yes, the spikes are everywhere. So it's like a round ball with the spikes coming out of it. I said, oh, the, you know, a round ball that became a porcupine, you know. Um, so anyway, that's what it looks like. The spikes are really important because those are the things that infect. Those are the things that get into your cell, allow the virus to replicate, um, to, to duplicate itself and get in your body and do its nasty. Um, so that's, that's where we are with that. That's what it looks like. And that's what they, they got to work with. I saw this statistic yesterday on CNN. Um, right now there are 35 viruses, uh, viruses. <laughs> well, there probably are those too. 
35 vaccines in the pipeline that the different organizations are working on. I'm first going to talk a little bit about one that was in the news last week, and it's the virus that was developed in England, and it's being put out there by AstraZeneca. And um, they, um, one of the things that's very interesting about that virus was you can tell that they're paying attention when they do these research, um, things like this, and even in the phase one, phase two, phase three, you have not only the people, you know, working on the virus, but you often have what's called a um, safety monitoring board. And they watch the data. And evidently what happened with the AstraZeneca virus, they had a very, they had somebody who was ill in England. It was some, some spinal infection. And they, and he had, had the vaccine. So they stopped that, that trial right away. So they are looking out for things like that. Um, they, they started up again because I, I have not read any complete details, but it seems as though they don't think that that infection was related to the vaccine. So they've started the trial again. The one that's coming from AstraZeneca, by the way, in case you like this trivia, is called AZ as in zebra, D as in Debbie, 1222. And the way, what, the way it works is um, they took a, um, it, they said it's a non-replicating. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a virus, it's called an adenovirus, that cannot reproduce. And they, um, and they load that virus up with one of the little spike proteins from from the from the virus itself, from the COVID nineteen virus, and um, they inject that in, and that the immune system sees that sees that as a foreign thing and mounts the fight. That way, if you are, you know, what they're hoping is then down the road, if you're infected with the real COVID nineteen, your immune system says, "Aha! I know this." Boom! Out with you. So um, that, that's how they think this is going to work. Now, I read somewhere that they were not doing animal studies for these vaccines, that they were going right to people. Well, it turns out that that's not, it may be true of some of the vaccines, but it's not true for all of them because the, the um, AZD-1222 um, was tested in the Rocky Mountain Laboratory in Montana by NIH um, in, <clears throat> in um, monkeys and uh, rhesus monkeys and uh, mice. Like I said, remember I said they use a little form, which are the mice, and then they use these uh, macaque, rhesus macaque monkeys. Um, the phase three of this one is underway, as we know. They're gonna use 30,000 people What's interesting about this is 10,000 of those people are going to get the placebo. So they're going to get like a saline, you know, a, just a saltwater shot or something. Um, they they want to see, you know, that again, they're still testing. They want to find out if, um, you know, for some reason, people, people's bodies form immunity, you know, even without the vaccine. They want to make sure the vaccine works. So um, that's what's happening with the AstraZeneca 
uh, one. Another one that I picked up, um, the, the last press release I have on this is in July, July 16th. And this is a vaccine that um, was worked on by the folks at NIH. They have a whole center that's called the Vaccine Research Center, uh, Building 50. I know about that building because when it was being built, you couldn't walk in that area. The construction was so bad. But anyway, um, it's NIH in Moderna, which is uh, out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And this one, they're doing a little bit differently. They, <coughs> they use... They used a um, they used a complex that th it's something that they had developed from a previous SARS uh, virus back in two thousand eight two thousand nine, and it is just a um, it's it's called mRNA non infective mRNA and mRNA is uh, RNA in your body takes the information from your genes and moves it to whatever processes needs to be in the body. Uh, mRNA has to do with proteins. So this mRNA is injected into your body. It goes, it goes into the muscle, um, and it tells your body to produce one of those virus proteins, those spiky things, and then your body says, uh-uh, that's, that's bad and it'll produce the immune response. Um, by the way, one of the interesting things, I said that the virus was developed, in, most, most vaccines are developed in five to 10 years. However, for them to get that vi vaccine to test, they only took 66 days from the time they saw the layout of the genes on the internet to the time that they had come up with um, this structure for this vaccine. Wow, that's this fast. One, it, yeah, that <clears throat> is fast. And they did, they, they're just, that's why they call some of this stuff is in warp speed. Um, this one's called mRNA-1273, and they are now in phase, they did phase one and phase two trials. One of the interesting things about the phase one trial, they tried different levels of, um, dosages. They tried 25, um, uh, I think it was milligrams, 25, 100, and 250. And what they discovered, and this is why you do all this research, what they discovered was the 250 was too strong. It, the people got two bad reactions. Um, they, they got two injections of it, and after the second injection, they, you know, they really had a lot of tiredness, um, headache, feet, you know, just, it just was too much. So the, in the trials, they're using 100 um, because the 250 was just too much. Um, they're also going to put, the, in their phase three trial, it's 30,000. And um, they're going to try to target hard hip populations. So we're talking about first responders, uh, people, and then also people in uh, minority communities. Um, another quick note they, they uh, got worried that, um, the, you know, that we weren't going to get a vaccine fast enough. So there's been some research with sort of short-term solutions. And one of them is um, they, they made, it's called a monoclonal antibody. And this thing, um, 
is made by the immune system. It is a protein made by the immune system to fight things. And this one would fight the COVID-19 virus. And they are using that and injecting that into folks to see if they can give them some immunity until the real, until the vaccine comes along. So that, that's one way that they're looking at this. And, um, they, they are, um, they're looking at folks in that study who are close with somebody who has the virus who, or who just is diagnosed with the virus and they want to find out if having this, uh, in their system will keep the virus symptoms down. Another that's pretty, one. That's pretty interesting subject. I yeah. Mean, I guess so. Yeah. yeah I, I could and talk what, about this stuff all day. One last thing is that there is another company using the same kind of approach, but instead of manufacturing in the lab the monoclonal antibodies, they took it from a, um, a uh, COVID-19 patient, and they, then they developed it from there. And they, they're very interested, this particular study is very interested in going to like nursing homes and people in closed um, environments like that to test it. And again, this, this kind of structure only gives you immunity for a short, they, they, I think for a short time. And it's, it's kind of a stopgap for um, waiting for a vaccine to come. That's really that interesting. Is, <laughs> yeah, that is basically the information that I have today. Um, I have no idea when these vaccines will become available. The scientists are trying to be as rigorous as they can in as short a period of time. Um, you, you have to wait a little bit for the phase three trials to look at the results down the road um, to see what side effects you're getting and if it actually does give you some immunity for a length of time. Um, so I don't you know, my my guess would be we're not going to see something like this till in the next year, um, because it just it take it does. Even though we want things very quickly for this virus, it, we you do have to be as careful as you can be. Um, so that's that's all the information I have for today. And it's exciting uh, thanks stuff. for listening. It yeah. is. It's it's. I love this stuff. I was the kid in junior high that used to do all of my reports on in science on diseases and i, <laughs> I spent my, my free time in my, ba my background is when i was a little girl i wanted to be a doctor or a nurse very badly i did and, too i wanted yeah my grandmother and me uh you know and then i found out that when you're blind it's not really the best choice right. and then right. and then when i um Later on, when I decided to um, get my social work, my master's, uh, I found out that you could be a medical social worker. Yeah. And that, that, it, that became my dream. And that's how I ended up at NIH, because I really, really was, you know, I wanted to be in the medical environment, and, I, and social work was the way to get in. So that's the way I did it. Great. Well, I would like to thank you a lot for Absolutely. doing this demo. <laughs> And I'd also like to remind folks that at the end of this demo, Debbie will be available for taking questions. About, about this or the mantis. Right. So, if you have any questions, you can always email Bill Sparks 
or you can call us during this live broadcast at 646-558-8656. That's 646-558-8656. When you're asked for a meeting ID, enter 848-725-450. That's 848-725-450. When asked for user ID, press pound, and you will be in the room where you may ask your question or make your comment about this presentation. All right. That's it for now. Thank you, Debbie, very much. Thank you. And everyone stay tuned next week for another, another exciting, exciting demo. demo.